Christmas, you wouldn't expect to be in Acts. You would expect to be maybe in the Gospel of Matthew or in the Gospel of Luke. In the first couple chapters there, as we read about uh, the, the stories behind Christ's birth and the way that Mary responded when the angel came to her and the way that Zechariah responded when the angel appeared to him in the temple and said, hey, um, your wife, Elizabeth, who's barren, she's going to have a baby. Um, and that baby is the forerunner to, to the Messiah. We'd expect to spend time here in those passages, um, really encountering the great glorious narrative of Christ's birth and the times leading up to it. But we're going to be in Acts 3. Um, and I think it's really, uh, or for, for me, it's, it's to the point that we would understand all of the glorious implications of what Christ came for and what he did. If you're like me, kind of like Dad prayed, you're coming in to this holiday, you're coming into this sun- Sunday, and your, your life is kind of a chocolate mess. Like if you're a human being, your life is a chocolate mess. You're sinful, and you're surrounded by sin, and you experience the consequences of your sin and the sin of the whole world, really, on a regular basis. And for the sake of time today, I won't go into detail trying to convince you how messed up you are. If you're honest with yourself on any level, you, you know this already. It's not something that is a, a novel concept. So for this reason, like, like all seasons um, today... We desperately hope for and long for restoration. We know that we were created by a holy God to be holy, to be his servants, um, to know and enjoy him on the earth. But really, um, we, we read in Genesis 3 that all of humanity gives God the finger, for lack of a better term, in our sin. We said, no, God, we don't want to serve and enjoy you. We want to serve and enjoy ourselves. But... In so doing, because we've done that, we've experienced the bitterness and the brokenness of sin. Because we didn't live the life we were created for, we get all the comeuppance that await a life of sin, which includes brokenness and emptiness. We are left empty by our attempts to go find joy and satisfaction apart from God. We desperately need to be restored to the original purpose for which He created us, and that was simply to know and enjoy Him, and to serve Him. So as the Christian church, we, we believe, like the Christian church espouses the belief that that restoration comes by Jesus. We believe that the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus worked to destroy the power of sin in His death, and He has given us His righteousness. He didn't, he didn't die, um, He didn't come and die and rise again to make us awesome. Like the whole point is not that we would be awesome as Christians, that we would be empowered in and of ourselves to really live dramatic lives. It's that he gave us his awesomeness. He saved us by his righteousness and all merit and glory go to him. He restores us by his power for his purposes. And so this restoration that we're anticipating on Christmas and we're going to read all about here in Acts 3 has been anticipated since early Genesis, since Genesis 3, as in God's curses of the serpent and Adam and Eve, he also references a seed that would come from Eve that would crush the serpent's head and would ultimately be the one to restore humanity. It would be this new Adam that that brings humanity back to what it was supposed to be. People who serve God willfully, volitionally, and, and enjoy him. 
So as we come to Acts 3, it's this restoration that is being accomplished by the gospel of Jesus, and it's on full display. If we're just scanning through our Bible, maybe you're looking ahead and you see the lame beggar healed. Like, where are you going? How are we going to... How is this going to tell us about Jesus and restoration and, and you know, mankind's existence and what it's for? Um, well, I, so I, I get that. I kind of empathize with that question. Um, we might mistakenly think, if we're just scanning through, that this is a cool story about a healing that happened that made some people frank, freak out and it landed Peter and John in the clink. But if we do that, it, we're being short-sighted. That's not what the book of Acts is about, to tell us cool stories about what the apostles did. The book of Acts is telling us how the gospel, the good news about Jesus, breaks through and starts to actually have an impact as the kingdom is expanded on the earth. As Jesus' kingdom comes into earth through the preaching of the gospel, people are restored, and we see it time and time again, and that's the point of these stories. So my goal for our time today is that in this chapter because we're going to go through all of it, but I'm going, to be, I'm going to try and be pretty fast. My goal for our time is that our hearts and minds would know and would feel hope in Jesus as we see the greatness of who he is, and then that we'd be people of confidence, having witnessed the power of the one who has called us to our mission, who has called us to our purpose. So let's get to it. As I mentioned, I, I want to be kind of casual, so we're going to read a little bit, and then talk a little bit, and read a little bit, and talk a little bit. I feel like this kind of passage will lend itself to that. So, let's start in, in verse 1. We're going to read the first three verses here of Acts 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's like 3 p.m.-ish. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. So we need to understand the scene. We need to understand a little bit about what's happening here. Our scene is the temple. And um, we've got these two guys, Peter and John. And if we would look back a couple of verses to the end of chapter 2, we would see that Peter and John are are members, um, really leaders in this new church, the, the church, this brand new church, that is active in evangelism. They are, uh, they're seeing people saved. They're a, a sold-out community living together in a passionate, joyful, self-sacrificial community. And they're living out this call that they receive from Jesus, which is referenced in Acts 1. It's, it's referenced in Matthew 28, that their mission as a church is to go and see people converted, go and spread the gospel, see disciples be made, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then out to the ends of the earth. And so they're starting in the epicenter of where Jesus said, hey, start making disciples here. They're in Jerusalem. Not only are they in Jerusalem, they're in the religious epicenter of Jerusalem, which is the temple. So we've got this community, and they're, they're, they're endeavoring to fulfill the mission given to them by Christ, and they're starting at the temple. Um, and before we brush back, brush past the fact that they're at the temple as the epicenter of their mission, we also need to understand what the temple was. It's going to be helpful as we see how uh, the kingdom breaks forth in this space, is that the temple 
is a place of, of pretty big significance for the Jewish community. Like, this is the place where they would come to commune with God. It's the closest they could possibly get to a direct one-on-one relationship with God. If we think back to the law, we understand that you know, the relationship between God and the people was mediated through the priests. And so the priest and the sacrificial system was all conducted at the temple. So this is the place where you'd expect God to be working. If there was a place from which restoration would come, you'd think it would be the temple. So all these people are here claiming to be worshipers of the true God, and that's where this new church built on the sacrificial lamb of Jesus Christ is actively trying to engage their religious community and see people, um, see people saved by this gospel. So that's the scene. And then we have this other guy, this third character we need to understand. Um, he's, he's lame, we see. We got this guy who can't walk. He's being carried by somebody to the temple gates there to beg. And that seems to be normal for this guy. It says every day, like, this happened. This is how this guy made it in the world. He's totally dependent on other people. He can't move around the world on his own. He's literally physically broken and is dependent on others for his mobility and for his life. And it's important we understand that his physical state is going to be a picture of the spiritual state of of everybody. It's physically broken and utterly dependent on others. So this man sees Peter and John and he asks for alms. He's like, hey, can can I have some money? In Milwaukee, it's really, really normal to get hit up, as as it is here, too, particularly in this neighborhood uh, in Wichita Falls, but there are panhandlers everywhere in Milwaukee. And uh, so it's not unusual for me, as I'm walking into and out of work, um, that I would come across the same people. Some of them, I know their names. And as I read this passage, I'd imagine that Peter and John have interacted with this guy before. We know the disciples spent a decent amount of time at the temple, and we know it was this guy's habit to stand at the gate of the temple and beg. And as we read further in this chapter, in verse 10, we see that this guy was recognized by others who frequented the temple. Now, we don't really have a way of knowing for sure, but it's not outside the realm of possibility to think that the lame man and Peter and John and the other disciples would have interacted before. And this guy actually probably has a pretty good shot of knowing the gospel. Like, he, what happened at the temple just like a few months before? Like, Jesus was there. That's where a lot of the trial stuff happened prior to his crucifixion. This guy's probably familiar with who Jesus was and the claims about who he was. So let's keep reading then. See what happens. And Peter, after responding to this guy asking for alms, directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So as we read through these, these verses, we go, wow, that's really, really cool. 
So, so what? I think we need to make some observations about the theological significance of what's just happened. And first, the first thing I'd say is the power of the church, the power that healed this guy, the hope for his brokenness and the hope for everyone's brokenness is Jesus alone. The man reached out, and what did he ask for? He asked for money. He asked for what he thought his deepest need was as a person. Um, He doesn't fully comprehend what might be awaiting him, and he doesn't fully comprehend what might be done by the power of the name of Jesus. Only then to have his eyes blown wide open to the infinite grace of God, what can be given to us by God's infinite grace, when Peter says, listen, I don't have silver or gold, man, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Like, how earth-shattering is this? Yeah, I don't have money on me, but Jesus has all the riches in the world, not just physical, but he has riches so deep that he can heal your your physical body that you have no hope. Like, you're not even going to ask for healing because you just don't believe it can happen, but Jesus has the power to heal you. So rise up and walk. Trust in his name. This is vital that we remember that our first and foremost passion, our first and foremost power as people is not anything in and of ourselves. It's purely Jesus' name and the grace that's been given to us by God through Jesus. So what's going to build our church? It's certainly not us. It's not our charisma. I tried that. doesn't work. Um, it's certainly not our, our speaking style, and it's not our music, and it's not our facial hair. Like It's just... The grace of God given to us in Jesus, that's our only hope as a church, and it's our only hope as people. What's going to satisfy us as a person? What's going what's to take care of our relational struggles? What's going to take care of our anxiety and our worry? Like, what's our hope through those things? It's nothing but Jesus. That's the only thing that can heal our human brokenness. Humanity's deepest needs aren't met in anything else. Only by faith in Jesus. And if you've tried to fill up your needs, you know this to be true. We know that we've looked for hope in other things and we're only left empty. So again, I don't think you need to be convinced of that. I think it just takes some measure of human honesty to own it. So the second thing I want to point out here is that as this power is received by the church, as it's received by Christians, the power to be saved, it the healing that has worked, comes by faith. And we see this in this healing as well. I think as we read this, we might see the lame guy at the gate as a passive recipient of Peter and John's healing. Like, hey, bro, you're healed. And he's like, hey, thanks. But I think that's selling short what these verses say. If we look at verse 16, we see Peter, we're going to look ahead here, Peter talking to the crowd that gathers after the healing. And he says, listen, this healing, it was by his name, Jesus' name, by faith in his name that has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. So the healing and the restoration that this man experienced happened by faith in Jesus' name. Like Peter and John didn't heal the guy. They just told him to stand and walk. Jesus did the healing. As the call to respond to his name was met in faith. Now, there's, there's some debate, you know, if you read the commentaries about whose faith is being talked about. Is it Peter and John's faith, or is it this guy's faith? 
did the healing happen because Peter and John were filled with the Spirit? Well, yeah, I mean, they were filled with the Spirit. Odds are pretty good. They had faith, but I'm going to say it's, it's both. Clearly, Peter and John were, were men of faith. Clearly, there was faith present in them, but I think we also see faith in the lame man that can't be denied. Um, because, again, he might have been quite familiar with the gospel of Jesus. He may have even been a believer at this point. We have no idea. But we see his response to the healing as an indicator of his faith is that he doesn't turn to worship Peter and John or he doesn't just run away. He's clinging to Peter and John. And verse 8 says he's praising God. So his response is not one of like, yeah, woo, now I'm going to go do some stuff or these guys really did it. His response is to give all the glory to God. And that's a response of faith. Healing was brought to this guy who placed his faith in Jesus' name And humankind, like him, is hopelessly broken, and our healing only comes by a response of faith to the gracious gospel of Jesus. And Peter's about to speak to this in detail, so we're going to keep going. We're making good time. Verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Like, naturally, a paraplegic dance around the temple is going to cause a bit of a hoopla. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as if though by our own power or piety we could have made him walk? As if to say, we're just people, friends. You really think we could have made this guy walk? Like, that's just not our business. We don't have the power to do this in and of ourselves. We're fishermen. No, instead... The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. It's not us, it's Jesus. Yeah, you remember Jesus. The guy we killed, yeah, yeah. Well, he, that guy who we crucified just a little bit ago, he actually fully possessed and shared the glory of God we all claim to worship. That Jesus, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one, And asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. So Peter drops a heavy indictment on the temple faithful. People who probably didn't feel like they needed to be restored. Because hey, we're already at the religious epicenter of God's chosen people. We've kind of got it together. But Peter says, um, yeah, just, you know, a couple months ago, we were there. The whole squad saw it. You killed the holy and righteous one, the author of life. And Peter's language here is pretty similar to uh, his indictment of the crowd at Pentecost in Acts 2. He basically says the same thing for verbatim. He has no problem pointing to a crowd of, of lost people of broken sinners and saying, you, you are guilty. And that's an important lesson for us is there's no restoration, there's no salvation, unless we first come to terms with the fact that we stand before God with the schmoes in the temple, we stand with them guilty of the blood of Jesus. It was for our sin that he died, thus you could truly say that his blood is is on our hands as it was literally on the hands of the people in the temple. We, humanity, killed Jesus. Like, you want to know how messed up humans are? Like, there's, there's some important words here in the, 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 there's important meaning in the words of Peter in relationship to our anthropology or how we view human beings. 
is that humans, all of them, in our sin, killed the author of life. You think people are basically good? Like, clearly, we can look Jesus, we can look God in the face and kill him. That is humanity's problem. We're not basically good. There's nothing good in us. If there was, when God revealed himself to us, we would say, okay, but we don't. Instead, we say, nah, dog, it's not for me. Instead, I'm going to reject you totally and utterly to the point that we crucified the Christ. This is the state of man before Christ. But we see Peter contrast that before state with what Jesus has done to the lame man and the restoration that he works by God's grace. Verse 16, And his name, that's Jesus' name, by faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So faith in Jesus' name, faith that comes by the gracious power of Jesus, has produced this work of healing and restoration, this marvel that everybody's getting really jazzed about. And Peter goes to pretty emphatic lengths to say that true healing and restoration, like what the Jewish faithful has been anticipating, it's, it's here now. It can be experienced by you all. And I think the crowd is like really like getting worked up because this miracle that has just taken place, this miracle that's showing the power of Jesus... It's very similar to language that was used in the Old Testament, and specifically in Isaiah 35 and Joel chapter 2. Those passages would talk about what does it look like when the kingdom of God will, will come, when restoration will happen, the lame will walk. And so they're going, wow, there's a lame guy walking, something is happening. The kingdom is being restored. And Peter says that restoration is coming by Jesus alone. It's not coming in by military power, as we might have expected. It's not being bought. We're not converting people through economic influence. It's not coming through temple rituals and animal sacrifice. It's coming by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus the Lamb. Which is, like, if we just stop there, that's a pretty impactful message. Is that the restoration that the, the people of God were waiting for, the nation of Israel, like, it didn't come... And then, boom, it came. Christ came. The restoration is being worked, and we see it being poured out now in the book of Acts. We see this lame man walking. We see people being converted. Therefore, the call is to latch on to Christ, to follow him. The kingdom's coming. Let's go. Let's join. Let's get after it. Seems like a nice place to wrap up, right, Peter? A cool thing happened. You really called out the temple legalists, and you told them the gospel. Like, we should probably leave, right? Time to get out of Dodge. Let's move on to the next place. Not really. P Peter's kind of just getting started. And there's much to be gleaned by what he's about to say. And one, one side point here that I think is important for us too is that Peter doesn't just drop gospel, say, hey, here's the gospel, good news, without calling them to respond. Like, one of the things that the church needs to do, individual Christians need to do, if we're going to be faithful in our call to make disciples, is we present the gospel, like we winsomely share the good news about Jesus with people, but we have an aim to persuade them. We're not trying to coerce them. Like, we're not forcing people to be Christians, but we should be saying, like, listen, this is a matter of life and death. A response is required of you now. And Peter's going to get into this response here, as he did in Acts 2 in Pentecost. 
He's giving, he's making, he's passionately beckoning them to respond to the good news about Jesus. Like, this is true, and I'm begging you for your sake and for the sake of our shared joy that you repent and believe this. Pick it up again in verse 17. And now, brothers, so he was he's saying, you killed God, but now, brothers, there's a big change in his tone here. I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. That should like bring our minds back to Isaiah 53, which Dad read earlier. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So Peter, again, he's coming off this heavy indictment, and he takes more of a tone of empathy and compassion. He's just accused these guys of, of killing God, but now he says, Brothers! Like, I know you weren't fully aware of what you were doing. We're so blinded by our sin, we don't always grasp the depths of its heinousness. We probably never really truly grasp the depths of the heinousness of our sin. I know you acted in blindness, but know this, that God was working in spite of you. Even in your sin as you crucified God, God was working your redemption and restoration. God was fulfilling the words of the prophets that his servant, the one by whom restoration would come, would exercise a ministry of self-sacrifice and of suffering. Peter almost certainly had Isaiah 53 in mind here. Even in the sin of humanity, God was working his glorious redemption and restoration by the sacrifice of Jesus. And there is grace through that in spite of the depths and the gravity of of our sin, even if we were to physically have been the ones to kill Jesus. God's grace is greater than that. So then Peter gets to the heart of the issue. So because of this reality, that grace is offered up by the sacrifice of Christ, by God's grace, repent! There is grace for you, so take it! Turn from your rejection of Christ and from your sin, turn to Christ in faith, and your sins will be blotted out. They'll be done away with. They'll be eliminated. Your sin will be taken away from you. The punishment will not be for you to pay. And a major point in this passage is that this call to repent and follow Jesus is not simply an offer to not have to pay the penalty for your sin. Like, that'd be pretty great uh, alone. Like, hey, I'm no longer underneath the condemnation that was justly mine because I rejected a holy God. Like, that's already a pretty nice thing. But it goes beyond a get-out-of-hell-free card. Like, this is actually a call to experience Jesus' restoration and experience the purpose for which God created us. We're created, as I mentioned earlier, to know God, to serve Him, and enjoy Him. So the call to be restored is not just to have our sins done away with, but to actually be able to commune with God without our sin getting in the way of that. The Christian call is not one of doing religious things. It's knowing and enjoying God. So we repent in order that we would be Christ's 
and we would live restored to willful, joyful service to God in anticipation of Christ's return and his ultimate restoration of all things. Because I think we know, as we sit here today, what, if, we're, if we truly are gods, we know the joy that comes from serving him and worshiping him. But at the same time, this is still a booger. Like, there's still death, there's still pain, there's still disease, there's still winter in Wisconsin, which is about as bad as it gets, uh, you take my word for it. But as our eyes are opened by God's grace and we come to Christ in faith, not only do we experience the spiritual restoration of Christ in our conversion and sanctification, we look forward to the day when he will restore all things, when Christ's work will be complete, when we'll be made perfect like Jesus and by Jesus and live totally without sin. And we will live in like perfect, full, total joy and perfection because the sin that once separated us from God has been abolished by Jesus on the cross and he's dealt with it in, in totality in his return. So if you're an authentic Christian, you're already 100% sealed by the Holy Spirit and 100% a member of the kingdom of God. Like we understand that's the reality. The kingdom has already been ushered into earth by Christ's death and resurrection. But as I mentioned, even as Christians, we still sin. Like we still experience pain. Life is still really brutal. We've not yet been restored to the perfect image bearers we were created to be. We stand before God as perfect image bearers because Christ is standing before God on our behalf, but we don't yet experience the full reality of that. So we rejoice in the already, the fact that we are kingdom members and the kingdom has come, but we wait for the not yet, the ultimate restoration and perfection that is coming. The message of Jesus coming, his birth, his ministry, and his death and resurrection is a message of joy because... We, because of the benefits we already experience, but it's a message of joy because it also points us forward to look at what is coming. That even though we experience the pain and difficulty and the failure of today, we know that he has said he will return. As we look at the entire narrative of the Old Testament, which we'll get into a little bit more in just a second, that pointed us to Christ's initial coming, we now look at the entire narrative of the New Testament, which points to Christ coming again. As he was faithful, as God was faithful to give us Christ in the Gospels, to give us Christ to pay for our sins, we know he's going to be faithful to send Christ again. So we press on in joy and hope. So as Peter pleads for those in the temple to respond to this fantastic news about Jesus, as he calls them to place their faith in Jesus, he, he doesn't, like, we're shifting gears a little bit because he's going to point to this Old Testament narrative to further encourage, to further persuade. Like, we're not just left with this miracle of this dude doing the jitterbug, like, hey, look at this guy and this miracle, therefore you should believe the gospel. He's actually going to go back now as we keep reading, and he's going to say, listen, the whole Old Testament has been declaring this to you. That's a pretty good reason for you to believe, not just this miracle, but the fact that you should have been ready for this. So, um, he's... Uh, let me see where we want to go with this. Let's just keep reading. Let's go, go to verse 21. All right. So I'm going to pick it up actually in verse 20 just so we get the context. 
All right, so that the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people." And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So Peter appeals to the prophets in general, talking about their anticipation of the full restoration that would be worked by the Messiah. I referenced Joel 2 and Isaiah 35 earlier. I would commend those to your study. And in verse 22, he quotes Moses' statements from Deuteronomy 18, where Moses anticipates a prophet like him, but way better than him. A prophet that would come after that And the whole Jewish community at the time of Jesus believed that Moses' statements in Deuteronomy 18 were anticipating a messianic figure. One is coming, be on the lookout, and this is the one that you must follow. This is the one that works restoration and will bring Israel to what is supposed to be this nation of true true God followers. So this passage anticipated a new Moses, if you will. One who would perfectly exercise the mediatorial role between God and the people that Moses and the subsequent priests once held. So Peter claims that all of the prophets spoke to and anticipated the days that had come. The coming of the kingdom of Jesus. The whole law and prophets existed and it exists today to testify to Jesus as the great prophet and priest and king. It's not that we were given the Old Testament And then God changed his mind, and then Jesus came. It's that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. The entire sacrificial system anticipates Jesus. The law needs fulfillment in Jesus. So I imagine here that Peter feels a little bit flabbergasted as he's speaking to a bunch of Jews in the temple. Like, you're the sons of the prophets, he said. You're the squad to whom God made these promises. God told your father Abraham, by your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Well, the blessing is here in its fullest form. This guy is showing you about it. The Old Testament's been testifying to it. As children of the covenant community, the good news about Jesus is here to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness and by restoring you to righteousness and true life before God. So Peter's standing in the temple, the house of God, Showcasing the power of God, preaching a long-awaited message, hailing the restoration of the earthly kingdom of God. All of that finds its source and fulfillment in Jesus. So all of our hope as people, broken people, many of us I would imagine are non-Jews, it's the same. Like all of our hope for restoration in life, all of our hope for overcoming our brokenness is not through any personal reformation. It's the reformation that Jesus provides for us. It's his perfection given to us by God's grace. So where does that leave us? I just would want to remind us of a few points and implications from this passage as we wrap up. 
First, there's a bunch of cultural pressure to affirm humanity. Like, we all have our truth, and it's an important thing that we follow our truth, and everybody's truth is equally valid. But that's not what the Bible says. That's garbage thinking. Your truth, according to the Bible, is a lie. It's a lie you tell yourself to try and convince yourself that you and those around you are not hopelessly broken. But apart from Christ, none of us are any better than this lame man in this picture. None of us are are any better than the, the most lost, broken, hopeless person in the world. Thinking about just walking into work again, back in Milwaukee, I'm no better than the homeless person who's all doped up on on pick your drug. Like, apart from Christ, that is me. That is who I am. So we should be quick to identify with that level of brokenness, to own the fact that we are hopeless, that we are broken, and have no power to heal ourselves and become anything of any note before God apart from Christ. We are sick, helpless, dead in our sins, unable to move, just crying out for for help. We're spiritually broken and incapable. And if you're not down with this depiction of humanity, like if you're not down with, the, with this understanding of who human beings are apart from Christ, then you're not down with the biblical gospel. You're broken. Humanity is broken, and we have to accept that. Because if we accept that, then we can accept the healing and restoration Like, sure, you're hopelessly messed up, but you're not doomed to be hopelessly messed up in perpetuity. A holy God created you to love and serve Him. You decided you had a better purpose, but God has worked through Jesus to restore you to the purpose for which He created you. He's overcoming all of your brokenness, if you will but let Him. Jesus came to be the perfect human you could never be. He came to live out what humanity was was created to be by God. He he died to pay the penalty for all of our mess-ups, and in His perfection and resurrection, He has created new humanity. He Himself is what Paul calls in Romans, the new Adam, the perfect man. He actually had righteousness, and in His resurrection, we see that He has the power over death to restore and give true life to a dead humanity. He can and does heal us and restore us to the purpose for which we were created. So we receive that healing and restoration by faith. And that's really, really important. When we respond to the good news about what Jesus has done for us with faith and repentance, we can rest in the fact that He is powerful and faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. And we see that in 1 John 1.9 and the whole book of Romans, that we should repent and believe the gospel and trust in God's power to save us and change us. If you're here today and, and you're not a Christian, this is the call for you. Because you can spend your entire life looking for hope and restoration and healing and meaning and purpose, and you're just not going to find it. Like, I guarantee it. And if you just go around asking people, like, do you feel like you have existential satisfaction? Do you feel like you really are, like, a full person? Like, I am complete. nobody's going to say yes. Nobody apart from somebody who has an authentic relationship with Jesus. And you can ask 
all of us here in the room, anybody who is a Christian, who professes faith in Christ and say, hey, did you have any existential satisfaction or purpose or meaning before Christ? And you would say, well, maybe at times I thought I did, but it just left me puking on my shoes. Like, it just left me broken and hopeless. Like, it just left me, like, searching for fulfillment and satisfaction. So, no, I don't have it, didn't have it. Christ is it. So finally, I want, us, I want us to leave here impacted by the power, too, of the proclaimed good news about Jesus. All of human existence finds Jesus and his role as the king at its center. It's, it's all about him. So in, in his name is the power to restore uh, a lame man. In him is the power to forgive sins. In him is the power to restore us to a right relationship with himself. It's the power to make blind people see. It's the the power to walk on water, to raise the dead and breathe life into dead souls. You don't have the power. You'll never have the power. You don't even have the power in yourself to be holy. It is only by Christ. Jesus does have this power. And if you're a Christian, his power is at work in you. And that's the encouragement. Like, so if you don't have Christ, repent, believe the gospel, experience the joy that comes in following God and living your life in pursuit of His will. And if you are a Christian, know that the power of the cross changes. Sometimes it's tough. Sometimes it feels like, does it really? Because I'm really struggling here. But we often struggle because we're not, like, we're not dependent on the power of the cross. We're not dependent on Jesus. We struggle as Christians because we get caught up in our own desires and our own wants, and we become very internally focused, whereas the Christian life is Christ-focused. It's outward focus. When our focus is on Him, He gives us the power to obey, to be holy, to be faithful to our mission. And so we preach the gospel to ourselves because we know that's what gives us the power to live the life we're called to live. And then we preach the gospel to others because as the the name of Jesus is the power to heal a lame man. It has the power to call our unbelieving family to faith. It has the power to, to, to transform our nation, not by like, hey, we should, be, we should institute a government that's blatantly Christian. I'm saying that the gospel of Jesus can transform those who have control in our nation and can thus transform a nation, can transform a world. Because that's the only thing that gives us, or that, that gives us hope, but that's the only thing that is any hope for this world. A political system, a political party, a particular government, a particular piece of legislation, like none of that is hope for the world. Christ is hope for the world. As he can heal a lame man, so he can heal this earth. So Christian rejects sin because God is working to make you holy. Boldly evangelize because he's working to call sinners to himself. The power of the cross is at work in this world. The power of the cross, the power of Jesus is at work in you, Christian. So hold fast to Christ. Cling to him, the source of our salvation, as we await his final full restoration to come. Let's pray.